Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give, and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Uh, would you join me in prayer one more time? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that um, you, you meet us in messy, terrible, and dysfunctional situations. And you bring good, and you bring love, and you bring grace, and you are reliable. You are stable. You are trustworthy, no matter what is going on around us, and no matter how we hurt ourselves uh, through our own sins. We thank you for your grace in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We are picking up uh, in a series that is, is moving through the life of Jacob. Uh, and last week we uh, had Jacob moving from his time of fleeing, running for his life, uh, to this time of settling, this time of rooting that God was bringing for Jacob and, and saw sort of the importance of his first impression on Rachel and, and saw the love that, that Jacob has for Rachel. He's willing to work seven years um, so in a picture of God's love and pursuit for us in Jesus. Um, but now we, we come to really it's just the, it's the very next part in the text, but we're essentially fast forwarding seven years. Seven years. Remember, Jacob came to Laban penniless. And he, he has worked for seven years, essentially, for, for the wages. He got his room and board, but the wages of Rachel for these past seven years. And now we're coming to what should be the triumphal, big celebration of, of Jacob and Rachel and, and this awesome kind of culmination uh, of, of all these years. And it is not, certainly, what Jacob expected. For that matter, uh, probably not what Rachel or even Leah right, had hoped for, had wanted. Um, and Jacob has, has promised right, this huge bridal price. Laban has no problem snatching this up. And um, yet, yet everybody <laughs> seemingly except Laban comes out um, to the rather raw end. Now, uh, earlier this, this year, actually this calendar year, it was... Um, you know, I would say late winter, early spring, 
and we were still living in Fort Myers. And I was texting with a friend of mine um, who's was about my age, um, and you know, married, had some kids, and he would come down. He was coming to our church in Fort Myers for a number of years seasonally uh, to visit his mom that was living there. And we were texting back and forth. And he was telling me about uh, the, you know, hey, while you're living in Southwest Florida, here are the things you've got to do. You've got to, to go experience these things. Uh, and, and at the top of the list for him was a place called uh, Boca Grande. Um, just out of curiosity, anybody, has anybody been to Boca Grande? Okay. Uh, so um, it's, a, it's a little sort of sliver of an island. It's technically a peninsula in Southwest Florida. Uh, and, and basically, you just, um, as you go into this sort of teeny strip of a peninsula and you, you go down, you have um, on the one side the Atlantic Ocean, Gulf of Mexico, or on the other side, you've got a, a rather wide um, water separation to the Gulf of Florida. Right? So you've got water on both these sides, and you can actually walk around the tip of this peninsula because um, it's, it's just very small from one side to the other. You can see both. Um, sides of the water. And it's also supposed to be like one of these um, kind of pristine scenic beaches, right? Just the, the beautiful sand and the scenic views and, uh, and great food, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I say to Liz, okay, well, we got to go. We got to go check this out while we're here. You know, we'll do a day trip. Um, now, the difficulty is from where we were uh, to um, Fort Myers, Boca Grande. As the crow flies, it, it was pretty close, but because you have this one access point you've got to drive to at the north, it was maybe like an hour and a half, two hour plus drive, which doesn't sound very long until you're schlepping a, a one-year-old with you, all right? And so you're getting up at like the crack of dawn, um, trying to like pack all of these snacks, we're packing all of our water, with us, right, getting every, everything there ready in here. We got to bring our beach tent because, you know, the, the paleness. Um, so you know, we got to carry that out with us. Uh, and, and so by the time we get to, um, we, we get all the way there, we have our breakfast while we're there, and we bring all of our stuff, all of our gear out to the beach. It's already afternoon, all right? And, um, and then we're, we're trying to set up our tent there on the sand, and, and what we didn't realize, we started on the uh, Atlantic side of the, the peninsula, which we didn't realize is a whole lot more windy. Uh, and so there's these gusts of wind that are just ripping the tent up, or we're trying to stake this thing down in the sand, and it just keeps pulling right up. We're trying to like sit on chairs inside of it, and the, it's, just, it's just ripping up. It's blowing over. All of our stuff is blowing over. Strangers have to like keep coming and having pity on us, right, to try to like help us get our tent set up. And meanwhile, Ellie is missed her nap, and she's hungry, she's cranky, uh, you know, she, she's crying, really screaming her lungs out um, the whole time, right? And, and, and we can't do it. We can't, we can't get the tent to stay. And so after, after a while of that effort, we just like, okay, we just, we're going to pack this whole thing up, and uh, let's just walk. We'll just, we'll just walk around the beach for a little bit, um, which we did, you know, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 minutes. And, and then by that time, it's like, all right, well, you know, we, we kind of have to start getting ready to go. Uh, and, you know, and so we're, we, we pack up all of our stuff, and then we're, we're going to get dinner there uh, before we head back. 
Uh, and about halfway through dinner, a, a guy like two tables down from us starts having a medical emergency, right? In the middle there, and just the whole restaurant is in crisis mode. They're calling an ambulance. They got to clear the whole restaurant, right, for these people to get there. And so we're like, okay, this is, this is probably our time to leave. Um, so, you know, we, we get back home after dark, right, and just this feeling of just total discouragement, Right? And disappointment and, and disillusionment. Like, just like that, that, that was the experience. Right? That, that, that was what we were supposed to be like enjoying from, from our time here. And it's, it's that feeling, right? It's, it's that experience, right? This disappointment, this disillusionment that, that's at the center of Jacob's story. And it's something that's really important for us to slow down on and think over because it's an it's a experience that is actually quite integral to our human life. And it's something that God wants us to learn from. He has things for us. Right? He wants us to take away from those times. And so as we look at this, this passage, the main point for us is to prize the one who won't disappoint. Prize the one that won't disappoint. That's God, in case you were wondering. Um, and, and so, for, for this text, we're going to look at um, three themes that kind of come out of this story. And, and so, the first is, there's a cycle of sin um, and, and cycle of, of deception. You, Jacob lives and he dies by deception. Uh, and then secondly, we're going to look at the idolatry and the disillusionment that comes with idolatry. Uh, and then lastly, we'll, we'll look at God's redemption. So, first of all, the cycle of sin. So, this point of the story, uh, in many ways, is where Jacob finally starts getting his comeuppance. <laughs> he, he finally is, he's really starting to get what's coming to him. Um, and and it's, this, it's this pattern um, it's this, this sort of structure, you could almost say a law of how God has made life, that your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Uh, and, and really, I think more pertinent to Jacob's particular experience is what Jesus says um, that time, you, you may remember, he's, he's, in, he's getting arrested in the garden, right? and Peter is there, and, and Peter lashes back out with a, with a sword. He cuts off the servant of the high priest here, and Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Right? And that's what's happening here. Right? There's this lesson that Jesus is getting at about all of life, that whatever sin grips you, or whatever kind of weakness or vice or problem it draws you in and, and you, you are susceptible to, you can be sure that is what you are going to suffer the most of, because of. And, and you can see this pretty obviously in the example Jesus gives, right? You think about if you are somebody who is, who is prone to violence, right? If violence is marking your life, you treat others with violence, uh, and, and that's how you live your life, you can be sure violence is going to come back on you. Uh, but let's maybe take a, a milder example. I, I don't think there's too many of us that are on a trajectory to join the mob. So, um, you know, think about a, a layer below that, anger. Okay? Uh, let's say that you are just an angry 
person. That you are, you're prone to anger. You've got a short fuse. Uh, you, you have these outbursts of anger. And, um, you know, it, you, just, you find yourself triggered to anger very quickly. You, you are going to know, if, if that describes you, that your whole life seems to be saturated by, seems to be surrounded by an environment of anger. And what, why is that? Well, it's because your anger is regularly drawing out the anger of people around you. Right? And so it's this cycle of sin that keeps getting perpetuated. Right? And this is true of every vice, right? of every sin, of every weakness, that the things in your life Right, that, that you struggle with the most and, and you find most alluring, you find most easy, most um, that, that draw you in the easiest, those are also the things you are going to suffer the most because of. Right, so, I mean, let's take just another even milder example. Let's, let's say, um, you know, this is the least possible for me to imagine, you have a bit of a sweet tooth, okay? Uh, so you like sweets, all right? And, and so what that's going to mean is that as much as you like and you enjoy sweets, sweets are going to be a cause of greater pain in your life. <laughs> because you know, saying no, resisting that urge, you know, stopping and holding off on that extra piece of pie, it's going to feel harder. It's going to feel more painful to you than to somebody who doesn't really even care for sweets. Right? And so this is how it works for all of us and for Jacob in his situation, his pet weakness, if you will, is deception. He, just, he almost just can't help it. Right? And so he lives by deception and, and he dies by deception. And in Laban, Jacob finally meets his match. Because Jacob and Laban, I mean, they are just two guys cut from the same cloth. Right? And they, they kind of egg each other on. They bring out the worst in each other. They, they sort of spur each other to these acts of deception. Because, I mean, you know, technically here, technically, Laban does give Jacob his daughter Rachel. It's just that it's just, it doesn't work that way, Jacob. It doesn't work that way to you know, give the younger before the firstborn, which is a garbage explanation, in case you're wondering. Now, but you know, really what's happening here is, is that Laban, just like Jacob, is very opportunistic. And, and you know, one of Jacob's other pet struggles, we'll, we'll see more later, he's greedy. He's, he's got a money problem. And, and, and uh, Laban knows as soon as Jacob offers this exorbitant price for Rachel, seven years, and, and Laban sees Jacob is head over heels for Rachel, and he knows, I've got you. And so, you know, he sees this as an opportunity. He sees, he sees Leah here. He doesn't know if anybody's going to come around and marry Leah. And so, here's his opportunity, because until Leah's married, she is a financial liability to Laban. Uh, and so, he, he takes this opportunity. Now, how does Laban pull this off? How, you know, how does something like this happen? You've got to remember, this is 2000 B.C., so, uh, no lights, no electricity. Uh, Leah's wearing a veil the entire time, right? Through the wedding, after the wedding. Lots of drinking going on. All right, so, you know, it, it happens. And, um, you know, Jacob uh, is, is, is taken in by this. And um, you, gotta, you do have to wonder how, 
how Leah and Rachel are feeling about all of this. While it's just happening, they're essentially being sold, sacrificed as pawns here by Laban. But uh, it, it goes through, and uh, of course, Jacob confronts Laban the next day, uh, says basically, hey, uh, you know this wasn't the deal. Uh, and, and Laban I, he, Laban has his answer ready. He, of course he does. Now, Laban is, has been planning this for some time. Uh, and, and so Laban replies back, he says, it's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn complete, finish out this week, you get Rachel at the end of this week, and yeah, just, you know, another seven years. And you can read this story, I think, it's sort of a single brush, and, and you wonder, why does Jacob just take this? Why doesn't he fight back? Or, I mean, why, it just seems like he just lays down and accepts this from Laban. And one of the reasons for that, we've talked about this earlier, but at this time in history, the family is, you know, your, uh, your family, your clan is the nation state. Right? And so Laban is lord of the land. Right? He's like the monarch. Right? There's not like a going against Laban. That's not, that's not doing you any good. Uh, but I think there's another deeper reason for this. And that is um, Laban, <laughs> Laban just has this masterful precision dagger stroke in, in this response to Jacob. Where he essentially says, hey, you know, uh, works a little bit different over here. You know, maybe you can call us a little bit old-fashioned, uh, but we don't give the younger precedence over the firstborn. And you got to remember, Jacob's been there seven years. So Laban knows his story. Everybody knows what happened with Jacob and Esau. And Jacob's conscience has not allowed him to forget what he did to Esau. And so when Laban, Laban kind of just subtly just throws this line in there, right, about, about the precedence of the, uh, the younger and, and not, not usurping the rights and the privileges of the firstborn, um, Jacob knows he, he doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to asking for justice. So I, I want to turn now, though, and, and think about um, Jacob's situation a little bit more closely, and, and particularly what happens, Jacob's experience, right? And that, that morning after, it says, verse 25, um, where he wakes up in the morning and behold, it was Leah. There's, there's, there's things in this that God wants us to learn. He, he wants us to understand and for Jacob to be learning from the rest of his life in this. Because this moment right there, it, it, this is the climax, or, or more accurately, the anticlimax. Of the story. And it's a powerful theme that is woven into our entire lives here on this earth. It's the theme of disillusionment. And before we go a little bit further into just this, this one phrase here, I think we, we got to say some words about Leah. Because Leah is a beautiful and an awesome character. We, we've got to see that. It is, in fact, God, in fact, chooses Leah, not Rachel, for his line to, to go through that's going to descend and that's going to end in Jesus. 
Okay, so, so it's Leah that is, is loved and worked through by God in this way. And, and Leah, is by, by far, she's not perfect. She has her own issues. She has her own flaws. She has her own heart work that God is going to have to do on, on her. And we'll, we'll look at that more next week. But she is a person that um, we should care for. We should have sympathy. We should have empathy. For, because we, we all have Leah-type experiences in our life, right? being passed over. We can understand that. Right? So Leah is somebody that God very much loves and cares for, and, and we should care for those sorts of people and experiences. But, but it's important as well to, to, for the moment, set that aside because there is an important message here in, in this message, in this incident, Viewed through Jacob's eyes, it is, it is part of a life lesson that God wants us all to get. That there's a picture here. That Leah is standing in for an analogy. Alright? And that is, in the morning, it's always Leah. In the morning, it is always Leah. And I'm talking here far more about than, than sexual purity and fidelity, although it certainly applies to that. I'm talking about the reality of, of the disillusionment of, of idolatry. And this is the, the perfect dep- depiction of what that looks like. And, and I mean, you can hear that and think, but that's really severe, right? Look, this is Jacob. Uh, he loves Rachel. Right? This is his romantic love for Rachel, right? That that's being that's being frustrated here. And yeah, it, it, it is that. Um, but there's also idolatry going on. I mean, you can see that in the exorbitant price that Jacob offers. You can see that in what happens in Jacob's life, right? How he treats his wives, how he treats his children. That come out of this, and, and the brokenness and the, the problems that come through uh, an idolatry of wrapping too much of his heart in this. Right? And there's an important lesson I think we, we've got to understand as well in that in life it is usually not the most heinous, most obviously objectionable things that cause the most damage. A lot of times it's, it's things that are good. Good things, right things. It's the valuable and the high and the worthy causes or people or goals, and we just put too much into them. And they take over. You wrap too much of your heart in those things. And it always 100% of the time lets you down. And you don't experience the fullness of that disappointment, that disillusionment, until you actually get that person or that thing or that goal. And then when that happens, watch out. Because there is always going to be a time, every time, when you will wake up in the morning and you will realize that it was Leah that you got. And it's not Rachel. Rachel. And this is true, I don't care if you are the most successful person in the world. I don't care if you're a three-year-old who's just got to have that ice cream cone. <laughs> There's going to come a time when you get what you think that you wanted and you realize 
this isn't what I thought it was going to be. It, it, it didn't live up. It didn't reach the hype. It, it, didn't, it didn't come to what this was supposed to be. It's kind of the perpetual yearly experience of being a Cowboys fan, year after year. <laughs> and, and it's also, it's also why it is the particular province of highly successful people to be among the most disappointed, most disillusioned in the world. Because they've gotten more of the things that are supposed to do it. More of the things that are supposed to make life what it's supposed to be, and every time, it's not it. It it loses its shine. It loses its magic. Every time. There's an old song, well, I suppose it depends on your, your generation. There's a song from 1969 uh, by a, a singer called Peggy Lee. Right? And she says, is that all there is? It's the name of the song. And it's a great song for this, right? because she goes through these various experiences in her life that she, she thought were going to be transformational, right? She thought were going to be pivotal, uh, there, there's a, she's a little child, and there's a fire that burns up her home when she's a little bit. She's a little child, and there's a time she goes to the circus, the greatest show on earth, uh, and, and there's a time she falls in love, and she has her heart broken, uh, and is left. And, and every time, as she kind of recounts these experiences in the aftermath, right, the chorus is, "Is that all there is? Is that all there is?" To a fire? Is that all there is to falling in love? And what she's reckoning with is this that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. There's nothing on earth that can hold up to the expectations or the fears that we have in life. Right? And, and we can't necessarily articulate a lot of times what these expectations are, but we know it's not meeting it. It's not making it. And whenever we do get something that we're hoping for, whenever that does happen, it, it always turns out to be a little bit more bland, just a little more prosaic, a little more ordinary than you thought it was going to be. And, and the question for us is, what's your response to that? What do we do with this? If pervasive disillusionment lies around every corner of life, what, what, how do you respond to that? I think the answer for, for most of us is the same thing that Jacob did. And that is to kind of pick up the pieces of your disappointment and say, all right, but there's still Leah, or still Rachel. I still, there's still Rachel out there. Now, once I get Rachel, once I have Rachel in my life, then, then it's all going to be good. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to marry Rachel. Right, but remember, this is, this is a picture. And, and the question, though, for you and for me is, how many Rachels are you going to have to go through? Because the reality is every single time when you wake up, 
in the morning, and it's Leah, there's going to be another Rachel out there. There's going to be something else. There's going to be someone else. I think that this time, this is the thing. This is, this is the achievement. This is the person. When I have this, then, then, I'll, then I'll be happy. But the reason the Bible gives us why we're so disappointed, why perpetually disillusioned, why nothing really holds up to what we think it should, is it's not meant to. I really think that one of the biggest drivers behind, in our world, behind all of the hurt and the pain and the anger, the anxiety and the resentments, is unmet expectations. It's unmet expectations. As we look at the world around us and look at the people around us and our work and our families and ourselves, and all of it is falling short. Nothing is meeting our expectations. And so it's worth asking, I think, well, why? Why do we have these expectations? Where do these expectations come from? What are we supposed to do with them? Why am I expecting life to, to be this way? And, and typically, the solutions that the world offers to, to this trouble, all right, it's a sort of courageous faith in yourself or in the world. Like, just, just keep believing. Now, keep, keep going and, and have faith. Or, right, it's a form of, uh, Buddhism or Stoicism that says, um, you know, you, you need to learn that life is suffering, so you stop being surprised by that. <laughs> just kind of, you know, just just uh, learn that that life is supposed to be pain, right? And and you learn to not feel anymore, right? So you can kind of just be like here all the time. Right? But the answer that the Bible gives us is. The reason we have infinite expectations is we were actually made that way. We're made for this infinite relationship. And yet all the world that we live in and ourselves are fallen and corrupt. And God is the only one that's infinite. He's infinite in His power. He's infinite in His grace. He's infinite in His love. He's, he's infinite in his wisdom. And he is the only one in the world that will hold up to the infinite expectations that he's actually made us to have. And so the answer and the solution isn't on the one hand, or just don't give up the faith. Just, yeah, just keep soldiering on. Just keep your chin up. And nor is it to just, be, you just become really cynical and jaded. But the answer is to learn and to know and to relate to this infinite God that gave himself up for us, that, that wants us to know him through Jesus. Jesus bore the ultimate sting of disillusionment. Right? He, he lived a life like nobody else deserved what nobody else ever deserved. And what did he get? Right, he got the worst punishment in the world. To be cut off from God. 
And he went through that so that we wouldn't ever know that type of disillusionment. We wouldn't have to. And this brings me to the last point that I'm going to close with. And that is God's redemption. God's redemption. And I think it's ironic that God here, who's the only one that Jacob is meant for, the only one who uh, is, is completely faithful to Jacob, the only one that can live up to and actually exceed everything that he's promised to be, God is the only thing that Jacob doesn't have to work for. Jacob has to work for everything else in his life. His birthright, the blessing that he takes, his relationship with Laban, his wives, Leah and Rachel, all of his property, the, the reconciliation of this, this terrible relationship with Esau. Jacob is going to have to work at every one of those things. And God, God, God is the only one. He's just, he's just there. A lot of times, just in the background, forgotten a lot of times, but, but he's the one that's actually going to take care of Jacob, who's going to love him and provide for him, and who is going to, to be and exceed everything that Jacob could expect. And, and there's not a working involved. You may remember a chapter ago when God meets Jacob. Jacob was not working to meet God. He wasn't even looking for God. God just shows up and says, you're mine, I'm going to take care of you. And this is the same way it works for us with Jesus. God shows up on the scene. He says, if you're tired of being disappointed and disillusioned, I'm the answer. If you are tired like Jacob of grasping and grasping and always coming up short, always waking up in the morning and finding that it's Leah, I'm the answer. If you are tired of working as hard as you can and being cheated and taken advantage of and and just this feeling that, that life is not ever going the way that you thought it should be, it's not working out the way you think it should, I'm the answer. Jesus has done the work for us. And Jesus is better. He is better than anything that we could actually expect from him. Let me just finish up here, but I want to take a step back. Or just kind of set this whole thing in context, which is God's incredible power to redeem. God's incredible power to redeem. God demonstrates unbelievable power here to bring strength out of sickness. Because everything happening in this scene is sick and unhealthy. You've got Laban's conniving greed. You've got Jacob's foolhardy passion. You've got this dysfunctional sibling rivalry. You've got deception. You've got lies. You've got betrayal within the closest relationships you should have. And through all of these things, God is working. In this mess, God is working in this mess to actually build and create his people, Israel. He's going to build up his chosen people through Leah and Rachel and their two servants in the midst of and through all of this mess. 
And so we should never believe that our mess is too big for God. We should never believe that our idolatry is too big for God. And we should never think that our disappointment, our disillusionment is too deep, is too far gone for God to meet us, to come into that, and to bring us up, or to actually draw us to Him to satisfy those things with His grace, His redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You are enough in a world where nothing is, where everything fades, everything slips out of our hands, everything dies, everything disappears. Lord, you are firm. And, and more than that, you are not just stable and unchanging, but you are good. And you are better than what we could hope for. We pray that you would help us to, to shift what we are prizing in this world. Uh, to, to prize the only thing that won't disappoint us. In Jesus' name, amen.